Hey guys, this week we're spending the day in Charlotte with Kyle Busch. The two-time NASCAR champ was surprisingly candid about his split with his crew chief. Essentially, you just told me you quit on me. As well as Kyle and his wife, Samantha, opened up about their struggle with infertility. We have to start back at square one. So are you ready to keep fighting? I said, yeah. All right, I'm right there with you. Before we get into it, though, remember to leave us a rating and review, which will help us a lot in growing this podcast. Probably fair to say media's never been Kyle's favorite, so spending a day with him took a lot of planning. A special thanks to Toyota and their motorsports family for all their help with this. And to Kyle's credit, he just went above and beyond, giving us more access and more time than I ever even expected. He also chatted about his fiery personality. Honestly, I've had to learn how to um, care less. And the COVID-19 pandemic racing challenges. It's going to be a struggle again to make sure that you unload right. Plus, we catch up with more of his family and have some fun with him at his shop, which we'll tell you about later in the episode. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, man, no problem. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, All right. So uh, I actually wanted to start off by talking about Brexton uh, okay. because uh, you know we were at his uh, final race of, of the season. Yep. Um, how did he get into racing in the first place? Well, it's kind of weird the way that COVID came about this year in 2020. It was the time of season and having that opportunity to be able to uh, go to the racetrack, go to the go-kart track and kind of watch and see uh, some of the other kids that, that I know, the dads and stuff like that, their children are racing. So they asked and invited us out there. And so we went out there, checked it out. And Brexton, he liked it. He was like, yeah, that's cool. You know, can I have one? Can I get one or whatever? And I was like, well, let's test first. Like, I'm not going to go out and buy everything right away, right? So um, one of the dads let me borrow his car. And his kids actually went to uh, summer vacation with their grandparents up in Michigan. So that was perfect timing for Brexton to get in that kid's car and drive it around and make some laps. And he did well. Um, you know, he kept getting better each time out and got a little bit faster. and got more comfortable with it. So then it was, okay, I guess we need to get into this. And so we went out and and got a car and uh, tested him a few times. Um, I think it was the first, yeah, I think it was the first test with his own car. He's getting a little faster, a little braver. And it's, the car was a little bit loose, like it wants to spin. And so he, instead of just letting it spin to the infield, he was trying to catch it, you know, like dirt tracking, you know, steering to the right to actually go left. And uh, he overcorrected, and it turned him dead right and shot him right into the outside wall. And thankfully, mom wasn't there. <laughs> Samantha wasn't there for that. But I was there. I mean, it was a, it was a hit. It was a bang. And I was like, oh, no. Like, it, it's over now. Like, we're done. I now. mean, were you really concerned? when uh, that... I was, yeah. yeah. So I ran out on the track, and I checked him to make sure he was okay. And he was crying. It hurt, you know. And his helmet hit the steering wheel, which... Um, it actually broke the helmet he hit so hard so i'm laughing because it's it's funny but it's just like it's never happened before the helmet guys were like that's never happened to us before we've never seen that at least it served its purpose it it served its purpose he was fine so he got out we took a break and uh, i was like hey brex you know when you hit the wall the engine stopped so i don't know if the engine's okay i need you to go out there one more time just to make sure that the engine's okay because there wasn't a mark on the car he hit it with the front bumper not a tire or anything, so it didn't create any damage. So, um, you know, he, he was like, 
I was like, would you go back out there one more time? And he was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I was like, I just need you to check the engine. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, so he was already game to get back in. And I'm like, we might have a race car driver here. He's all right. <laughs> well, that's cool because you were talking about kind of what caused you to make the decision to move forward with it. I was talking to your brother, Kurt, yesterday, and he pointed out, like, Rexton's getting into a much younger age than the two of you did. Um, how, how have you gone about starting to find that balance? It's tough. It's really tough because I'm very competitive, and even Brexton is very competitive as well, too, where we don't like to lose. And so I like to go out there and, and see him have fun, but to see him improve each time we go out. Um, I don't like to go out there one time and we're running, let's say, 13 second lap times, and then the next time we go out there and we're running 13 fives, you know, we slow down. Like, I don't, I don't like that. If you're going to run a pace, you can run that pace every time we go there, you know. And um, he's been doing much better like that. Actually, two months ago, it's like a switch went off, and he just got way better, way smoother, way faster. You show up to the track, first lap on the track, boom, it's his fast lap, and he rolls pretty good. And so that's been really exciting for me to just kind of get him to that point and now to just kind of fine tune his driving characteristics a little bit. So I'll admit, Kyle and I are type A, overachiever type people, and we have to check ourselves. Say, okay, he's only five. This is fun for him. And the problem is, is we don't think like five-year-olds, so we don't understand. He takes things so literally. Um, you know, I think I already told the story about the checkered flag. We, I did flag class with him while Kyle was at the race, and I showed him the checkered flag. I'm like, you know, you drive through the checkered flag, you don't stop till after it, yada, yada. Well, during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the checkered flag was pink and white, not black and white. He didn't stop. So we finally get him to stop. I'm like, what are you doing? He said, it wasn't the flag you showed me. I kept going. You mm -hmm. told me don't stop until I see that. And I'm like, that I did. Or dad told him, you got to butt up to the car in front of you. And Kyle went, butt up. So what did he do? He went out there, boom, right into the kid. And he's like, I butted up like you said. <laughs> like, yes, technically you are listening. What's been involved with you and your dad uh, teaching him? I think the biggest thing is just um, teaching him, right now it's just about teaching him lines, you know, what the proper lines are to run around the track. You don't want to be a kid who wanders all over the place, jumps through the infield, comes back on the track, spins out, hits the wall, runs into things, you know, you, you want to be somebody that can be really smooth and he, he's done that since the beginning. He's always been a good listener for a five-year-old. Um, but you know, fact of the matter is you tell him something, you tell him to move, and, he, and he, can, he can put it together. I'm like, higher entry, lower middle. And he'll run a higher entry and he'll go lower. He knows what you're saying. And so for him to be able to take what you tell him and apply it to his driving, I think shows pretty good skill and, and, and pretty good way of, of what he might be able to become. It has to be kind of cool seeing your dad get involved. I mean, it's kind of like starting all over again, I'd imagine, for him. But how have you seen kind of family get involved? Yeah, uh, my dad was a, a bit rough in the beginning, just like I was, where we weren't seeing very much improvement. We were like, ah, he ain't got it. We're not going to do this. You oh, know? come on. Yeah. He's five. And that's the thing. So there's other dads that come up to us and they talk to him and me and like, hey, don't be so hard on the kid. Like, give him a break. Another one of the dads was like, you realize you're bringing your child to the racetrack in a car seat, right? <laughs> and <laughs> there was another dad who was like, look, my kid started at seven, and he was exactly where your kid is at five. 
So it's just the time and being in the vehicle and getting accustomed to what it can do um, for the child versus how old they are. You know, like it's not just going to be, okay, start him at seven and he's going to be ready to go. It's going to be start him at seven and we're going to be right back to where we are at five. So you just give them the time to, to get used to everything and, and, and build their, their comfort, essentially. How do you see Kyle and Tom working with them? Oh my gosh, it's, they're so serious. It's borderline funny. Like, Kyle has me now getting data off our car during tests, like with a, like, like an engineer. <laughs> and Tom and him, I mean, they're sitting here like studying, researching parts, watching races. He's five. I mean, five years old, and they are already, you know, cup level with him. You ever call him out on it? All the time. What, what do they say? It's got to be the best, right? And Tom's always like, hey, I made two champions. This is going to be my third. This is like the last one I'm going to coach. So, but you know, they're good about still letting him have fun. And, and, but when those two are together, it's just like, oh my gosh. How much do you look forward to the day when either you could potentially be following him around or you guys could actually be competing against one another? I don't look forward to that day. No? <laughs> no yes and no. I mean, I look forward to it. It's going to be fun, but. I don't want to be the guy on the race, the dad on the racetrack, worried about his kid or thinking about his kid or something like that. At the same time, you know. Um, and, and why is that? Because you know how it affected uh, your parents. No, or? I just want to focus on myself, okay. right? Ah, like I, okay. I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to win races. Okay. Um, but then if he's out there, I'm going to be worried about him and 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 teaching him. So I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of crossover for him and I. I look at. Um, uh, Bill Elliott and Chase Elliott, for instance, you know, Bill retired and then Chase kind of got his start. And so they never really raced against each other. Bill was always on the sidelines, helping Chase, teaching him, watching him off the track. And I kind of sense that a little bit where, you know, I can keep running in my career right now, help Brexton, obviously he's way down at the beginning. And there might be a way where I retire from cup racing and go race late models where Brexton might be on his way up and is racing late models and we spend a year together there. And then after that, I'm probably gonna be done and, and he'll be hopefully on his way up. Yeah, I mean, even I think your dad and your brother Kurt had a couple years where mm -hmm. uh, they were competing against one another. So yeah, yeah. nonetheless, be interesting uh, experience. I wanted to talk to you about COVID. Um, how strange was it to not have Brexton and Samantha at races it was challenging i mean it was different for sure um the weekends normally uh without covid you fly out on thursday night or friday morning and you have practice on friday you have qualifying on saturday you have the race on sunday and so you're there for the whole weekend you're in the motorhome you're doing things outside the motorhome you're going to places to go eat um you might be you know going to find a, a workout facility for samantha and i or uh, a play place for samantha uh, for brexton to go to and take him there um, but this year with them not being allowed to go, um, I pretty much fly out on race day because it was just a single event. So you literally fly out on Sunday, you go to wherever you got to go, you run the race, you get back on the plane and you come home. So there's really way less travel for all of us, um, and way less time away from home essentially with the COVID schedule. And I wouldn't call it easier because it's harder 
at work, like at my job. You know, no practice and no qualifying made my job harder because I like to be able to work on the car, make the car better, get it to where I want it to be for the race weekend. So we weren't as successful in that uh, regard, but it was way easier and way more, it gave your life back to where you're home all week, you fly out for one day, you go to the racetrack and you come back. You know, like Fridays and Saturdays we're at the racetrack with Brexton and then I go run on Sunday. You know, so there's way more time at home, way more family time. Although Samantha said uh, that there's way more anxiety on her end <laughs> with not being at the races. How so? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously I was injured uh, in 2015 years ago. And uh, so in that instance when there's always that possibility, right? I mean, this is a, an extreme sport. It's a dangerous sport. You can be injured at any time. Something can happen. So she wants to have the opportunity to be there to make sure that if something like that arose, that, that she could be by my side. And so NASCAR pre-COVID was already going through financial and generational changes. How do you see COVID uh, further impacting that? We've already been told that we're going to have uh, only six races with practice and qualifying. The rest of them are going to be just like they were in 2020 with no practice or qualifying. So yeah. it's going to be uh, a struggle again to make sure that you unload right and your car is ready to go and perfect basically right at the start of the race. Uh, it's very hard to do, um, but that's, that's a part of it. It's the same for everybody. We just got to be better at it. Uh, you know, and NASCAR should get a lot of credit for this past season. I think its TV audience was only down like 1% when all the other sports leagues were down a ton. But the NASCAR president um, called it the single most difficult year that we've ever faced as a sport. During that 10-week pause, um, what are you thinking? Um, I was basically, I knew <clears throat> that we had to get back racing. Like there was no ifs, ands, or buts. I was like, they're gonna make a way, they're gonna figure out a way, we're, we're gonna have, whatever we have to do, we have to get back racing. Because if you're not on the track and you're not racing, then the teams aren't getting their sponsorship revenue, so they're not able to pay their employees, their drivers, their, their people. And so there was gonna be a huge fallout from all of that. And economically, it was gonna be disastrous for the sport, so I knew Everybody at NASCAR did a great job and pushed really hard of making sure that we could get back to the track and get some races in, whether it be with fans or without fans. Obviously, the, the racetracks took a little bit of hit on that because they're not selling tickets, they're not selling souvenirs, hot dogs, sodas, beers, whatever. But for my situation and my team and my guys, um, we all made it through the finish of the year like nothing was ever different financially. And I know you talked about how the, one of the perks of the, the COVID regulations was kind of lessening the burden on the body in terms of the travel, more time with family. Uh, I'd imagine that was normally the case, but what was three races in eight days like? Uh, yeah, that wasn't bad. I'm used to that. You know, I run three races in three days sometimes on triple weekends. I run the truck series, the Xfinity series, as well as the cup series. And sometimes those races are three days in a row. Um, sometimes those races are, are actually two in one day and then you have another one on the second day. So I'm, I'm used to running a lot um, and so I actually enjoy that, you know. So for me, I felt fine with it. Yeah, we ran a cup race on a Wednesday and then we ran a, uh, an Xfinity Series race on a Friday, a cup race on a Sunday, and then another cup race on a Wednesday. 
So there was there was a lot happening in that time. Uh, you, you mentioned this um, moments ago, but um, in, in preparation for this, you know, I talked to uh, Coach Gibbs, I talked to Toyota Marketing Chief Ed Laukas, and your brother Kurt, and all of them brought up the fact that uh, the inability to practice was an enormous deal to you. Mm -hmm. Explain that. Yeah, so for me, my thing is, is like when, when the car unloads at the racetrack, it goes through inspection, and then we get it all ready to go, and we're, we're, we go to practice. And when I have an opportunity to get in the car and drive it around the track and figure out the little nuances and the little things that it's doing that I don't think it should be doing or I don't, I don't like what it's doing, um, and every driver does that. They all have their own way of how they want to set up the car and what they feel like their feel is that they should have in the car. Or for myself, you know, some drivers, they set it up for how it is in that instant and to make speed and to go fast right there. And for what I know and being in the sport for a while and driving all the different vehicles that I have is I kind of have a sense of what I need to race well. So it might be fast for a lap or two, but then it falls off and it doesn't keep going with speed for a long period, so it's not a good race car. And so that was my problem in not being able to practice and get used to that and uh, to, to help set up the car, you know? So I felt like we had a little bit of a struggle with that at the beginning of the year. Um, I sat with the engineers and the crew chief through, through after about five weeks of, of coming back, we were struggling. And I was like, we have to figure out something to do this, 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 or this better, you know? Why the change in crew chiefs? Yeah, so going into 2021, I'm going to have a change in crew chiefs. Um, <clears throat> uh, I don't know, man. Just um, there, was, there was some periods of time this year where there was a bit of a struggle there for us, obviously. Uh, the communication was never a problem. Uh, the work ethic was never a problem. It just something wasn't working and clicking. And so I asked Adam for a couple changes to be made over the offseason. And he didn't agree with my philosophy on those changes. So he said, you know what? I'm going to go do something different and let you do something different, and we'll see what happens. What were the changes that you requested? Personnel. Okay. So he didn't want to make those personnel changes. What, um, when he said that to you, that he wanted to go do something different, what was your reaction? I was shocked because I was like, well, essentially you just told me you quit on me. So, um, okay, see you later. Now I have to go find somebody else on, on who's gonna be the next guy to step in and, and take over the reins and, and be crew chief for the, the 18 M&M's team. I mean, I can tell just looking at you when you're talking about it, like it uh, affects you. Um, well, I, I flat out told him in the beginning of our conversation, I said, look, I believe in you, I trust in you, I want you, you're my guy. We've done this already for six years. We've won two championships. Like there's, there's chemistry here and, and we have a working relationship where we understand one another. And when we're at the racetrack and we're under normal circumstances, every time we're in the practice sessions and I ask for changes or I talk about how the car is reacting and he makes changes, we always improve, you know? And so I haven't had that with a lot of crew chiefs. Sometimes you talk about the same thing over and over again. The car's tight, the car's tight, the car's tight. From the moment you unload to the moment you go home, there's never improvement, there's never change. Adam's been the first guy that on any given weekend, there's always change in the car and how it feels. And that's what I liked about it, you know, and him. And so that's why I didn't want to lose that. Um, but I guess all good things must come to an end. What's the state of the relationship currently? 
Uh, I mean, we're fine. We talk to one another. We're cordial, obviously. I don't hate him. Um, I don't necessarily agree with his decision or, or what he wanted to do, but hey, you know, we, we're all grown men and, and we all uh, go on our separate ways. Yeah, and sometimes I guess things just run its course and... True that. You know, yep. um, I, I, I want to take you back to when you were a kid uh, growing up. How would your parents use racing as kind of a reward or incentive? <clears throat> um, you know, what's fortunate for me, I guess, is I was never in bad situations growing up. So when I was in school, I went to school, and yeah, there were occasional times I'd get in trouble at school or whatever for, for different things, but um, I'd get certain things taken away from me, I guess. But once it came time to win it, I was racing, um, you know, the rules were you have to be an A or B student um, and no C's or else you can't race. And so I, I never got a C until my final year of school. Okay, what happened? It was first period and I'm traveling now. So I'm 17 and I'm traveling out and going racing on the weekends. I'm going to Florida, I'm going to Indiana, I'm going to Wisconsin, Ohio, wherever, you name it, I'm going, right? So I'm going racing all over the place and we come home Sundays late at night, whatever, and I'm tired, you know, and I don't even remember driving to school half the time and, and getting to school, but then I'd get there and first period was a computer class. Well, in computer class, sometimes they would turn the lights off. Dude, as soon as the lights went off, my lights went off. I was out. So I would sleep through first period a lot. So that was the first C I got. It's fair. I know, uh, it's fair. Yeah, I know. Uh, in what ways did your dad help you? My dad was, um, he was a huge influence just in, in the car realm. Um, his dad was a car guy. He was a car guy. He, he loved cars. He worked on cars. He was a car dealership mechanic for years. Then he got out of it and wanted to be his own boss, so he sold tools as a Mac tool distributor, driving around um, the town and, and going to other automobile shops and stuff and selling tools. So we always had cars in the garage. You know, my dad built a 1932 uh, coupe when I was five years old, less than five. I might have been, Kurt might have been seven or eight, I guess, and he was massaging on it. There's pictures of us working on this car. And so we also owned a 1946 um, sedan over the years. And so and, we always had and, cars. And that was really important to your dad that both of you worked on cars, right? Correct. Yeah, it was. And he, he wanted to see if we showed interest in it, right? And so my dad one time went to the, the local racetrack. And he just went out there to go watch. And one of the guys actually in his dealership that he was working at at the time, I think this is like 70 three or four, he, um, the guy was, the guy owned a car and he had a guy driving it for him and they weren't all that great. And so then the guy was gonna sell the car and get rid of it and stop racing. And my dad was like, well, hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait. Let me take the car, let me work on it, let me race it and let's see what we can do. Well, he won three of the last five races of the year in the thing and then they rebuilt it over the winter time. They went out the next year. They destroyed everybody, won the most races, won the championship. Then they sold that car, got a better car, like another division up, and did the same thing. Went out there, won a ton of races again. Like, and then the track closed for a few years while another track was rebuilt, um, which is now the Bullring in Las Vegas. That's where I raced and, and grew up racing. The first track was called Craig Road Speedway. Um, but. So my dad essentially became a, an amateur racer. 
And during all of this time, it's, I think back to it and I'm like, man, I think my dad missed out on an opportunity to move the family to North Carolina and try his hand in figuring out how to go race NASCAR. But I don't think he ever had the aspirations to do that. I'm not sure to this day, really. You could ask him, I guess. Yeah. Um, but he just, they stayed in Vegas. He raced in Vegas. He was one of the winningest drivers in Vegas. And when Kurt was old enough to get his start, he sold his big car and bought two smaller cars for the same price. It was a, it was a level down in racing. They were mm -hmm. cheaper, but you could get two for the price of the one big one. And so that's when Kurt got his start. And so um, they raced together for a few years. And then when I was old enough to get my start, then I got in and I got my dad's hand-me-down and uh, Kurt had his car, so then him and I were racing for a little bit, um, but that's when Kurt's career took off, and he raced more out of town when I first got my start. Then, so I was racing a little bit by myself, and my dad would occasionally drop back in and, and race a little bit because he got in a bad accident in November, October, November of 97. Uh, there was a 30-car Legends car field and the slowest guy on the racetrack. My brother was leading. My brother lapped him. And then I, think, I can't remember if my dad was running second or third in the race, but then the guy like wanted to follow the fast guys, so he got up like wanted to move up and follow the fast guy. Well, my dad was on his outside, and so he turned up, and it flipped my dad over on his roof, and he slid head on into the... Mm the retaining wall where the track exit was. So it was basically like a head-on wall. And while he was upside down, it, ended up broken his, it broke his neck. So he was sidelined after that. So I got my start, the Salt Lake City race, I think it was August, September of 98. Okay. That was the first track that we could find that would allow someone under 16 to race. And because our local track, you had to be 16, so I couldn't race. I was only 13 at the time. How did it affect you when news came out about falsifying a birth certificate? I, I mean, that like, but like as a kid, you know, I mean, it's not like normally when you hear that, it's like uh, somebody who's too old making themselves younger to be in Little League. Right. You, you don't usually hear it like a, a kid just trying to compete with the older guys. But right. I kind of felt uh, kind of felt cool. Oh, did it? Because <laughs> I got away with it for so long. Um, okay, how, how long did you get away with it? I got away with it for two and a half years. Okay. So I was 13. You were supposed to be 14 to start racing. So I started at 13. We made the birth certificate, right? So <laughs> I started at 13, and I made it all the way to 15. So I'm running cars that you're supposed to be 16 years old to run, and I'm 15. And I ran these cars for half a season. I think it was somewhere around July time frame, June or July and we're racing at the dirt track at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and it's a dirt modified, and um, I'm driving this guy's car. It wasn't, even my, it wasn't even our car, my dad's car. It was somebody else's car, and I'm running third. I think I was running third in the race, and I'm racing against this guy, and he's blocking me, and um, anyways, I felt like he was running me dirty, so coming to the checkered, coming out of turn four, I got underneath the back of him and I spun him out coming to the checkered. So I finished, I finished second or third, whatever it was. And um, he wanted to fight. 
after the race is over. So I'm in the tech area, because when you finish in the top five, you have to go to tech. So I pull over in the tech area, and I'm sitting there, and my steering wheel's stuck on the column. It's like, that's an old rusted car. They race on dirt. It's a really a turd, but anyways, um, I run second with it, so couldn't have been that bad. Anyway, the steering wheel's stuck on, so this guy comes over, and he is just ripping my ass through the window and just chewing on me, right? And then he, like, I, I think I take my helmet off, and like he's yelling at me, like, get out of the car. I want, like, he wants to fight, like, right. whatever. And so I take my helmet off, and he just stops. And he's like, oh, my God, he's just a f***ing kid. <laughs> so, that, so the next day, the guy calls um, the Las Vegas sports reporter and says, hey, this kid's name's Kyle Bush. Can you look up his records? How old is he? Because mm. he he, the next week, he wants to kick my ass, right? So he wants to know if I'm 18, mm -hmm. if he can beat me up. So the guy's like, oh, well, he's only 15. And he is, he's like, wait, what? He's only 15, and you're supposed to be 16 to run these cars. So that's how I got caught. Uh, what do you remember from that? So <clears throat> we were, we always grew up with one go-kart. Matter of fact, we still have both go-karts today, but we only grew up with one at the time. And it was just this yard cart. My dad made it or bought it, and it had a five-horsepower motor on it. It's a one-wheel drive, just something to learn on. And that's how Kurt and I both learned what to do, how to drive, make laps. Um, so we would always just be at the neighborhood parking lot. We went to the bank and we're in the parking lot and we were just, we'd time each other. That's how we would determine how we were running was just lap times. Yeah. Well, then we go to a, um, swap meet and I, like, it was like, like a cartoon, like there's something over there and it's like, oh, like there was another go-kart there and I'm like, yes, we need that. Like it looked really similar, about the same. So we bought it, and I think it was only like 100 bucks or something. So we bought it, and then we got a motor for it. We put a motor on it. And Kurt and I were going to go out, and we're going to run around and, and race against each other with our go-karts, right? They're open wheel, though, is a problem. So you climb a wheel, and like you can flip over or whatever. We can injure each other. So we were racing each other clean, like just having fun, like back and forth a little bit. Well, then Dad gives the, the one-to-go signal, like, hey, one more lap. And the race is on now, you know? It's like, oh, I, I've got to win. Well, of course he gives the one to go and Kurt's leading, right? So we go through one and two and, and Kurt slides up a little bit off of turn two and I got to run on him and I'm on his inside down the back straightaway and we turn off into turn three and I'm like right here just on the inside of him and he chops me to get to the bottom and I climb over his tire and as I climb over his tire and it launches the front of my car up and over the back of his car, it knocks the carburetor off his engine. So his car like stalls out, dies out, whatever, and I make it back to the I make it back to the to the finish line, so I won. Your dad just wasn't gonna have it after that. No, he wasn't he wasn't too impressed. So <laughs> he um he he wasn't uh he wasn't too thrilled with that. I can't remember we man, we had to be probably ten and sixteen at that time. And your your dad said your motivation was always catch up, keep up, and then eventually pass whatever Kurt had done. For sure. Yeah, I always wanted to be doing what my brother was doing. So if my brother is six and a half years older than me, he's sixteen, he gets his license, he's driving around town. Well I want to have my license and I want to be driving around town. You know, he's going to uh, RC car races and, and going out of state and running these big national events with his buddies with RC cars. Well I want to be doing that because I'm racing RC cars too. Why can't I go? Um, but yeah, there was, there was those types of moments where 
there's that sibling rivalry, right? And I mean, we always we always had uh, that that rivalry, no matter what. Well, in what ways did the sibling rivalry used to exist, and what about now? So it used to exist where. I would really lean on him a lot for just watching him and seeing what he's doing and wanting to outdo and be better than what he was doing. Um, you know, if he was racing cars at, at 15, 16, and I started at 13, well, he won, I think he won a championship his, his second year of racing. I won my championship my first year of racing at a younger age. You know, so there was that sort of thing yeah. that, that I was always after. Um, there, there was one other instance where, this is pretty, it's a funny story, it's a four minute story, but, so we're at, we're at the bull ring in Las Vegas, yep. and Kurt and I, <clears throat> I'm just getting started, so it's 1999, and um, we run a couple races against each other where he's really good, right, he's older than me, so he, he wins, like he beats me by a straightaway, so then the next time he beats me by half a straightaway. So then the next time he beats me, I'm right on his bumper. Well, my dad and I, we knew we were going to be racing for national points that year. So we come to a Friday night race, and Friday night race uh, this time was like double points for national points or something like that. So it was told to Kurt, like, hey, you need to let your brother win. Like, he has to win tonight, right? So he, we battle it out, the whole race, whatever, and... We come to the finish line and we're like, we're like neck and neck. And I finished, literally, I finished three inches behind him. And so I was livid. Like I saw red, nothing but red. Like I am madder than mad. So we go home that night and we work on the cars. We get everything prepared because there's a Saturday night race as well. And I tell myself in my head, I'm like, I'm going to go out there tonight. I'm going to set a new track record. I'm going to win the trophy dash, and I'm going to win the main event. Like, I'm going to do this. Like, hold my beer. Watch this, boys. Right? So, lo and behold, I qualify on the pole, new track record. I start last in the trophy dash because I invert the top six cars for the trophy dash. So, I mm -hmm. start last. Kurt starts second to last. So, I win the trophy dash. And then they do the same thing for the main event. I think we lined up sixth and fifth again for the feature. And when they dropped the green flag for the feature, I ran. And I went as fast, I went right up to the front, got the lead, and took off. Like, never checked up. So when Kurt, Kurt made his way through traffic a little bit easier than I did, he got, to, he got to second, and then it was time for him to come chase me down. Well, I had about a straightaway lead on him at that point, and we finished the race. This is a 25-lap race. We finished the race. I finished the race with a straightaway lead on him. And so I was pumped up, excited, like, hell yeah, I just beat Kurt. Like, I'm somebody now, right? So we, like, I did it for real. Like, yeah. he didn't just let me win. Like, right. I kicked his butt. So we pull over. We go to the tech area for, for post-race tech. And I'll never forget it. We pull into tech. And my dad is the maddest he's ever been in his entire life. Why? And he rips my brother and my ass to the ground. Because, so this is Tom. Those were his cars. Those were his engines. And Kurt and I just ran the death out of them. <laughs> and third place, like, I was here. Kurt was a straightaway back. Third place was a half a lap down. So there, <laughs> there was, like, so my dad was pissed because we just outran his equipment like we 
overran his equipment in that race. And so he was like, if you two ever do that again, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. You guys go out there. You race each other with respect. And, and you dice it up a little bit. You don't need to run away from the field like that. Like all this sort of stuff, you know? Because we didn't have a whole lot of money. We bought engines for our cars from the junkyard from motorcycles that laid on their side and were crashed. That's where we got our stuff. You know, we didn't go to the engine guy and buy a $30,000 motor. Yeah. You know, so that's just the way we were and the way we were raised. So I think Kurt and I might have run one or two more races together after that in Legends Cars. That's it. Kurt asked me to bring up uh, Kentucky 2019. Of course he did. Um, <laughs> well, he, he said he believes you gave him space because uh, he's your brother. Yeah, no, so we were racing 2019 Kentucky. Um, I hadn't won in a while. The last race I won that year was back in March or April. Yeah, I can't remember. But um, so we're racing Kentucky, and it comes down to the end, and it's a battle for the win. Uh, I was running second in the race. I think Kurt was running fourth in the race. There was a late race restart, and I got the lead on the restart. Kurt made it three wide to go around the guy that was in that was in first. Actually, he passed the guy that was in first. And so Kurt and I are now side by side, racing each other for the last two laps of the race. And um, there was two times, once getting into turn three, coming to the white flag, when you watch the film, I was clear. Like I could have drove up the racetrack and pulled in front of him and been clear. But my spotter never called me clear because there's not a good concise view of the, from where he's standing to where we're racing that he can see that I'm clear. So he didn't call me clear. And I looked in the mirror and I'm like, ah, I think I'm clear, but I didn't pull up. And then the exact same thing, the next lap, I timed it out to where I could get a bigger gap to pull up and, and get in. And same thing happened. He didn't call me clear again. And I was like, I, I knew I was clear. I should have pulled up. And I didn't. But Kurt was right there on my outside. And we raced off a of turn four. And we banged doors a little bit. And we raced to the finish. And, and he won. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were couple different situations or circumstances, you know, I, I could have won that one, but, um, you know, just racing with my brother and, and race, racing with him, not knowing that I was clear by enough and it being him, yeah, I, I gave him room, but if it was somebody else, one of my arch enemies or something like that, I, I would have pulled up in front of him no matter if I was clear or not. No, you would. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, how about when times when, because of the rivalry between the two of you, uh, stuff wasn't going as well. Um, take me to that, uh, I believe it was a Christmas dinner, <clears throat> you guys aren't talking, and give a little context as to what led up to it. Well, let's talk about the issue was the All-Star Race 2007 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Comes to the final segment, we're both running in the top five, and... Um, I think Kevin Harvick was, he took the lead. Jeff Burton was running second. Kurt had a run on Jeff Burton at a turn four. So he's on his inside and I'm running fourth and I got a big run through turns three and four. And I'm closing on these two guys who are stuck side by side. When you're stuck side by side, the air on both cars are slowing each other down, right? It's drag. So the guy that's back, back, back here with these two cars side by side, they're now punching a bigger hole in the air. So I got no drag. So I'm way faster. So I come up behind these two and there is just enough room for me to fit my car underneath Kurt to make it three wide down the front stretch. So I come with this head of steam and I turn underneath Kurt and I make it three wide. And um, he says there wasn't enough room there, which fact of the matter was I got there, so there was enough room there. 
Um, but he clears Jeff Burton by the second dog leg. And normally, you're supposed to like wow out to the wall for, inch, for corner entry for your line to run a better line. High entry, low center, just like I teach my son. Well, Kurt didn't go high entry. He stayed low, middle, and tight on my door. So when there's no air between the cars for the inside car, there's no side force. So there's nothing holding him from spinning out in the turn. Yeah. So as I entered the turn, we actually touched. Now you can say he came down, I could, somebody else could say I came up, whatever, we touched, and it spun me out and it crashed both of us. So he wrecked me, he finally admitted it just two years ago. Oh really? Oh yeah, he finally admitted it on my 200th win party. I called him out on it and he admitted he finally, he wrecked me. I'm like, all I wanted you to do is admit that you wrecked me. Like, you know, but, um, so it was after that I was pissed. I, I saw red and um, then he made some snark comment on TV about how he's not gonna eat any more Kellogg's for a <laughs> while, which was my sponsor at the time. And so that made me more mad. And so then we just, we never talked and the whole rest of the year, like even at driver intros, like we know where we're each at all the time. We never spoke to one another. And then- uh, I mean, that, that had to be brutal at the time, right? I mean, it is, I mean, your brother who you aren't talking to. Uh, I don't care. I didn't care. You didn't? Hell no. I didn't care. If he wasn't my brother, I wouldn't have cared. Uh, that's how I felt. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, but so grandma knows all this. So like I go visit grandma. He goes and visits grandma. Like grandma never gets to see the either of us together. And so she was upset about it. And there was this, hey, dad basically was like, grandma wants us to all have, I don't remember if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas together. Uh, so you guys need to kiss and make up and, and figure out how, you know, we can we can do this. So I think we still had Christmas together, but I don't I don't I still don't think we said but hi to each other. And how did it uh, get repaired? You know, it just took time to for us to kind of both get over it. Um, honestly, I think it was like the following year, end of year was when it about came to where we would be on talking terms. So it was a while. Like I'm reading these stories about you and the media has destroyed you um, over the years. Um, I picked the, the most biting quote and I've, this is from 2011 and I'm just interested to get kind of your reaction to it now, you know, many years later. It was an ESPN story and it goes, um, the Bush brothers put on a sad downward spiral of a display reminiscent of two three-year-olds fighting over who will get the last cupcake. Flipping out, flipping off, tearing a transcript in a reporter's face, wrecking people under caution, being benched, sponsors withdrawing, and then showing all the regret of someone who'd accidentally stepped on a daffodil. Um, what's like, I don't think I read that one. <laughs> like looking back on that now, like what do you think about that period? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, um, Fact of the matter, I mean, I'd, you can have any excuse you want. It happened, right? So there's no excuse that it didn't happen. Why did it happen? I don't know. I mean, I look at it right now with my son, Brexton, who's five years old, and, and we haven't, we haven't, we're trying to teach him how to lose better. Like, he really? absolutely hates to lose. Like, just a couple weeks ago, he finished second in a race and he was crying, like hysterically crying 
that he didn't win. I, I read uh, your wife, Sam, was interviewing you for something. I was watching it last night, and you made the, the comment to her. You're like, I, I mean, he kind of gets really upset when he loses, and I didn't teach him to lose that way. It's just hereditary. That It's, it's hereditary. We have a problem hereditary, right? But um, so I don't think, and that goes back to my dad, you know, not the exact situation, but like I remember one of the times where I crashed a Legends car, and I remember the coming back to the pits after the car was crashed, and he knew it wasn't my fault, like the oil filter came loose and, and I got in the wall, but I could just see in his face like the devastation of like a crashed car. So I'm like, man, don't ever finish second with this guy, like we better just always win, you know? And so I don't know that we, it wasn't that we were ever not taught how to finish second, but I don't know. We just we give so much to what we do and the sport and racing cars and who we are that a lot of our emotion in failure comes out in an entirely wrong fashion. And so, for instance, like the the quote about me uh, crashing a guy under caution was I had felt wronged by this particular guy over and over and over again, and so I was fl like flat out, I'm done. I'm sick and tired of it. I am, gonna, I am gonna destroy you right now. And I did it. And that's what happened, you know? And that same guy cost me a shot at a championship in the Bush series back in 2004, but nobody remembers that, but I do, you know? So am I vindicated for doing that? No, but. To, to what extent for you was there a turning point or a wake up call or at minimum, some sort of understanding of the extent to which you could take it without causing problems for yourself? Um, I think the biggest thing is I've had to learn how to, and this is crazy, and this is probably a bad thing, but honestly, I've had to learn how to um, care less. Really? Yeah. Like, it's not about learning how to lose better. To me, it's about learning how to care less about losing, which it, there's a fine line there because it can bleed over to caring less about racing in general. And I think that's where a few other people that I've worked with or whatever over the, over the course of the years, they move on and go different things because I don't know if they sense that or if they feel that or if they know that or whatever. But honestly, I feel like I'm to a point now where if I go any farther, then I might as well just be done. Um, you, you talked about the guy uh, you wrecked out. Um, you said, I, I read in a story, that you basically have a guy that needs to be paid back folder and a guy that's been good to me folder. Mm -hmm. uh, elaborate on that. Well, so when you have guys that, that race you well, race you clean, they always treat you with respect on the racetrack, that goes, that goes both ways, you know, that's mutual. Uh, and there's that folder of guys. And then there's the other folder of guys where whenever they get to you, they run into you, they door slam you, they knock you out of the way, they, um, they basically just whatever, right? And so you wanna do the same thing back to them whenever you're around them if you have the opportunity to do. So there's that folder. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I don't think there's a race car driver out there that doesn't have those two folders. Uh, you said, I'm pretty much my own worst critic, which is kind of bad to be. Uh, how so? Um, because, you know, when you, so I hate losing more than I enjoy winning. And even in a win, 
there's things that I look back on on wins and I'm like, that could have been better, that could have been better, the car didn't do this here, like this was wrong, the pit crew dropped the lug nut on that stop, whatever it might be, you know what I mean? So like to me, maybe it's because I, I'm too much of a perfectionist and I, I can always look at the negatives to everything instead of the positives to things. Do, do you think that's bad though? It's, it's turned me into this. Right, I, I mean, I was gonna say. I don't it's, think it's a bad right. thing. It's just a way of figuring out how to control all of that, harness all of that, use all of that to your advantage. And I've gotten a little bit better and a little bit smarter of that over the years, um, but definitely in my younger years, I was, I was not as um, charismatic. What do you think about when racing? Winning. How do I pass the next guy in front of me? Like what I can do to win? I mean, there's been races where we're running uh, 12th or 14th or 8th or something like that, and there's absolutely no shot to win. So that's why I liked Adam is we thought the same way. It's like, dude, we're just sitting here struggling. Like, can we fix this thing? So we'll come down on a pit stop and we'll sit in the pit box and we'll make adjustments to it, whatever we can do to it. We'll pull Packer, put Packer in. Um, we'll take rounds out of the rear window for, for wedge adjustments. We'll put spring rubbers in. We'll do shock clicks. We'll do whatever it takes in order to change the characteristics of the car to go out there and run better. So there's, there's that A, never give up attitude, but B, you know, you can come from fixing a car that should have run 12th to winning uh, at, at any given point. How often will you zone out when racing? Um, I don't know, not a lot. Sometimes at speedway racing, when you get super speedway racing, when you get, you know, uh, single filed out, it's the big Daytona Talladega tracks, you're running 200 something miles an hour and you're just single file. Um, and you're just running up against the wall. Sometimes you'll, you'll zone out and you'll just be like, how many more laps to go in this thing? Uh, two, I, I think, seemingly seminal moments from your career that I, I want to touch on. One, uh, the separation with Hendrick, and two, the 2015 crash. Uh, first, uh, Hendrick, um, Rick Hendrick's been quoted as saying um, that he was just under the assumption that you were unhappy and he probably should have taken a deep breath and had another conversation with you. Um, to what extent do you think if communication was better at the end, uh, the outcome might have been different? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, Rick and I, we talked a couple times, but the, the fact that lies in the Hendrick story was I had really good communication with Ricky Hendrick, who was Rick's son, who was a bit more my age. I think he was maybe seven, eight years older than I was. I can't remember exactly. Um, but he and I had a, a good relationship. He and I talked a good bit. Well, he was unfortunately killed in a tragic plane accident uh, in 2004. Um, half, actually it was in October. And then, um, so I kind of felt like I lost <clears throat> my, I'm 18, right? So talking, going and talking to Rick Hendrick, who's, I don't know, 48, 50, whatever, how old he was, is not quite my guy. You know, that's, he's not quite my jam. So and you might, kind of already felt like God man out there, right? Or just didn't quite fit in anyways? Kinda, yeah. yeah. So I just, so Jimmy's winning a lot, Jeff Gordon's winning a lot, and I wasn't winning a lot. Like I only won one race a year. So there just was something not clicking with me, with the team, with, with whatever it was. 
and also the 2007 incident at the All-Star race, my outbursts and acting out a few times and, and creating external and internal havoc, if you will, on, on people's emotions or whatever, um, was ultimately the demise of the relationship. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I mean, I had to sit down with, with Jeff Gordon for an hour. I went to his office one day, he called me in, we sat down, I, I laid my... And Jeff Gordon, your childhood idol. Exactly. Yeah. And he wanted to hear from me, he wanted to hear my side of like, so I spilled my guts, right? About everything, you know? And so I would say that that conversation came off more, if it was 51 to 49%, like 51% Kyle's unhappy here, however it came off to him, well, that was the message delivered to Rick, mm. right? So that's why Rick said what Rick said. Um, but it could have been fixed. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a, 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 some, a relationship to terminate but it ended up happening. Um, how, did, how did you find out? Uh, Rick called me. He was like, hey, we're, we're gonna have to go in a different direction for next year, you're, you're not gonna be our guy. Like, you know, you can go look for other opportunities. So I was like, okay. What do you remember thinking at the time? I thought my career was over. Why? Because I was getting released by the number one team in the sport. So who the hell else is gonna wanna take a chance on a, on a, um, a firestorm? of emotions of Kyle Busch, I guess. But you had to pretty quickly realize that wasn't the case because when I was talking to Coach Gibbs the other day, he was saying they were pretty heavily recruiting you and mm -hmm. they were concerned you'd go uh, somewhere else. But um, you actually, I believe, took less money to go to JGR. Um, why? Well, so yes, all that. So I get released from Hendrick and I have the opportunity to go on the race shop tour. So Dale Jr.'s on his way out. That's who was replacing me at Hendrick. They already knew that. I knew he was coming, but it was a toss-up between if I was going to stay or if they were going to hire Casey Mears and bring Casey Mears on, mm -hmm. which Casey Mears is really good friends with Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson. So he fit their mold better yep. than I did. So I was kind of odd man out. So all that comes into play on the termination. But anyways, so I did my race shop tour, and I went and visited with eight different teams and started to get a better feel for, hey, okay, I'm actually wanted, my services are, are wanted for me to be a race car driver for any of these teams. So, okay, I'm gonna take a step back, chill out, not think that um, you know, my, my livelihood and my life and my job is on the line every single week, every time I get behind the wheel. Like, it's like, just chill out. Like, let things play out a little bit more. You and know? You, you said that's advice you would have wished your younger self had. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, things turned out not so bad. But right. I, I certainly wish I would have had some of that advice earlier on. So I went to Gibbs, uh, mm -hmm. talked with him. Uh, you know, Joe was like, I can't remember his question, but it was basically like, well, why should we hire you? Like, you're this... Uh, fireball of emotions type kid and you're kind of in trouble a lot like why should we hire you and I was like hey fact of the matter is you probably shouldn't oh really and I was like you know I've made a, a lot of mistakes and I feel like I haven't quite had the support system behind me that I need in order to be able to learn from some of the mistakes and to harness my emotions a little bit better 
And I told Joe, I was like, I think you, for who you are and the people that you've worked with and helped in the NFL, running backs or defensive guys or whoever, right? Like they all come in and they're same thing, right? Like they want to, they're pretty, if you're an NFL guy and you're any good at it, you pretty much want to rip that guy's head off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think Joe has a pretty good sense of being able to harness that. And they had Tony Stewart. Too. And they had yeah. Tony Stewart, exactly. So I was just getting to that. So I felt like Joe was the best place for me to go to. And he called me every day. Like wanting me, like, hey, where are we at, man? Are we getting close? Like, is everything okay? Are you yeah. coming over here? Like, are we got you? Are we signed up yet? Like, every day he called me. Same and that, thing. That meant something to you. Well, it meant something to me, but it also meant something to me where, a, he's reaching out, so he runs the ship, right? Like he's calling me, and I didn't quite have that with with Rick over there. I, I didn't hear from him a whole lot, but. Um, you know, I heard from, which I guess he's recruiting me, so I'm hearing from Joe because he's recruiting me. <laughs> but even still, when I was hired, I, I heard from Joe a bit more. And I had raced with his son, Coy, in the truck series before, so he and I were kind of friends, yeah. like we knew each other. JD, um, same thing. He ran a couple truck races, but I think he was um, Xfinity. But him and I were about, I think him and I were about 10 years apart in age, so we were pretty close, relative. Um, so he and I had a good relationship. So then I, I had a good relationship with Joe also from the beginning who kind of became like that grandfather type guy. And the rest is uh, history. Yeah. How have you seen the relationship with Toyota evolve over the years? The Toyota side of things to me has been a way greater relationship. Even though I was at, at Chevy for three, four years, whatever it was, the first year I was in at Toyota, I had a way better Toyota relationship, I felt like, in the first year being with those guys um, than I ever did with, with the Chevy folks, you know? So um, they're very welcoming, very um, family-oriented. They, they were always very supportive. And, and we came in, and we had a rough start, you know? Wait, I, mean, I, I want to actually bring this up because Ed uh, Laukas, the Toyota marketing chief, brought this up to me the yeah. other day. So I, I thought it was worth mentioning to start there to just show how the relationship's grown. So you, you pretty much publicly trash their engines. Yeah, so they had, they had some issues um, with engines. So the relationship goes on for a couple years and, and the motors aren't really getting better on power and we're having more reliability issues, we're blowing up, we're having fuel mileage issues, we're not getting as good a fuel mileage, so we're not making power and we're not making fuel mileage and we're blowing up, like all three traits that are the wrong way to be. So we've had some come to Jesus meetings with them and we've had some talks and this and that and there was a meeting at, at Joe Gibbs Racing in one of our competition meetings, <laughs> Joe, you, Joe didn't tell you this one. We were talking about the, the Toyota relationship and the engines and stuff like that and Joe got up out of his seat and chucked his pencil across the table at the engine builder, Mark Cronquist, in this meeting. And the veins are popping out of Joe's forehead and you can see his neck and everything all stretched out. <laughs> and he is just going off, right? And he, he, he used one cuss word, it was, it was ass, but Joe never cusses, right? He's, he does not use foul language. So we were all just like, blown away and um, from that moment on so so I guess I took Joe's emotions and I'm like yeah 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 and did it more publicly 
So instead of just doing it behind closed doors like Joe did, I did it publicly, which, granted, that was young and dumb, Kyle, right? Ed and I, we've, 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 we've had a couple come to Jesus meetings. We needed milk and cookies well, together. Well, and you both are strong personalities, yes, too. Yes, we are. Ed was trying to chew my ass. He was doing a good job at it. And then um, I gave him some whys, and I gave him some of my, my thoughts and theories, and he was like, you're not wrong. So we came out of that, I think, stronger and in a better place because he understood where I was coming from and my drive and passion, which everybody already kind of knew and understood, but I think I did a really good job selling him. Uh, the ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. Ed was the woman in white gloves, so. Um, I'm just kidding. But no, we, we just came to an agreement. And I said, and I, I, I gave him my sense. I'm like, look, I've been in this a long time, but I'm also really young. I says, you've been in this a long time. The Toyota guys that are running this program have been in this a really long time. I said, you know, a couple things probably need to change. Personnel needs to change. Policies need to change. Philosophies need to change. And I'm not gonna say I'm right, today, but lo and behold, some of that stuff went into play, and we, we came out of that, I think, way further ahead. What was it like when you were in front of the team in Costa Mesa? It was awkward, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've done a few of those before, but so I get over, I just imagine everybody's naked. <laughs> so I just use that philosophy, like, eh, you just, you gotta go face the music, right? Yeah. And um, so you just, you gotta put your big boy pants. I mean, that was one of the things I said in our meeting with Ed. I was like, look, man, we both gotta put our big boy pants on and we gotta come out of this and get better. Yeah. You know, we both can't be babies about it and keep our diapers on and keep fighting back and forth as we leave here. You know, it's, it's about growing up and moving on. And so that's what I did with the, the Toyota guys. Yeah, I had to go there and, and apologize to them and talk to them and, and, and not give them all of my rationale like I gave Ed, but just some of that. And, um, you know, a lot of those team members still today um, will, will say how much they appreciated that moment and my admittance and uh, our opportunities to get better. The Toyota relationship means what to you? Oh, I, I, I feel like I'm a Toyota guy. Like, I'm, I'm Toyota blood. My kid goes, Brexton goes to karate class, and when they make their moves, you know, it's Kia. And I keep trying to tell him he needs to say, Toyota! <laughs> so I am ingrained Toyota, all right? Before you made it big, what were creative ways you went about saving money? <clears throat> so interesting point about me is my mom was a school banker. So she worked for the school district, so she was in charge of some of the school's money and stuff like that. Um, when she was a school banker at the high school, you know, and she would always collect the funds of the baseball games or the basketball games or whatever. And uh, so she was always in charge of the money. So when I get to make it to the big time, she wants to control my money. <laughs> and she wants to be the money gal. And I'm like, eh, okay. So I let her start doing it, you know, and a couple bills don't get paid. So I'm like, okay, you're out, you know. So um, I end up hiring a guy. And um, so... I had a couple really good people in the beginning that sat me down that were like, look, you're a professional athlete. Everybody's going to want to come at you for stuff. Everybody's always going to ask. You have to be able to figure out how to separate your money into buckets, right? So you have your tax bucket. You have your savings bucket. You have your insurance bucket. You have your um, um, investment bucket. 
and then you have your play, your slush fund, you know, your play money. So you have to fill all those buckets. If all those buckets aren't getting filled right, you know, and, and then it, it doesn't work right. So I, I've done that ever since the beginning, and lo and behold, I take that back. Ever since I was broke at one point. Oh, in, you were? In 2007, my money guys, these, these people that finally took over, they were checking out my, my money and, and looking at my statements and stuff. They said, you're going to be negative 200000 by the end of the year if you keep spending this way. So we literally had to stop spending in July. And what, what, was your, what was your reaction when you found that out? I was furious at the people that were helping me before. So I went from my mom to somebody to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So the, the middle person, I was furious. I was absolutely livid. And, and probably mad at yourself, too, right? Well, I'm I mean, mad because at myself, it's... too. But look, I, was, I made it. I made it at 18. I'm young and dumb. I was only 20. So like, I'm wanting to go out and have fun. I'm spending money. I built this building at 21 or 20 years old, whatever it was. So like, this was a $13 million project. Like, who the hell needs to build a $13 million project at 20 years old? Yeah. That was a bad idea. You know what I mean? So people need to tell me, hey, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. You know? So I didn't quite get that. So. Uh, anyways, now I feel like I'm on a good track, and 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 that experience taught you what? I mean, well, it taught me the buckets. Yeah. Right, and, and it taught me the opportunity to not fall into the trap of other professional athletes. That when you look at them after retirement, after a year or two, they got no money. They're broke because they spent it all. They're trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do with the rest of their lives, and they can't go play the sport again because either a they're hurt or b they're too old. You know what I mean? So you, you've got to have good people surround you to help you. Uh, in those instances. Your 2015 crash, take me through what you remember starting with moments before the actual crash. I mean, I remember the whole thing. Well, there was a little bit of grass before the wall and there was no safer barrier on this inside wall. It was just a hard concrete wall, which they've mm. put safer barriers around all the outside walls, but they didn't get to the inside wall where this was yet. And they came out immediately after that saying they were gonna <clears throat> do it regardless of cost, right. yeah. So, Anyways, I kept telling myself as I'm sliding, I'm like, pull your feet back. This is going to hurt. Pull your legs back. Pull your legs back. And so, because I was going to hit head on. And so when I, when I hit the grass, that was, that was the time where I was telling myself, I'm like, okay, close your eyes and pull your legs back when you hit the grass because there's nothing else you're going to be able to slow down once you hit the grass. It's just going to launch you up and you're going to be in the air, right? So anyway, hit the grass. I close up. I tense up. I get my, my arms tight, my body tight, my head down, and I didn't pull my legs back. I forgot. <laughs> so I hit the wall at 90 miles an hour, which was 90 Gs, and the force of impact with the engine and everything in front of me coming backwards and me coming out of the seat going forwards, um, it my foot was close enough to the gas. It wasn't on the gas, but it was close enough to the gas that everything came back 14 inches and I came out of the seat about eight inches. Mm. So it just, the gas pedal, it, um, there's a throttle stop on the bottom of it. Well, it smacked the gas pedal, which smacked my leg, which broke my leg instantly. Like I felt it snap. And then um, my foot was still on the brake. So while my foot was still on the brake under impact and everything going on, my foot broke. I had a mid-foot uh, break. And so when the car, and while I was coming out of the seat, like I remember the air just rushing out of me, like Whoa! it's like getting punched in the gut really hard. Like every ounce of air gets knocked out of you. 
And so finally when the car comes to a rest and comes to a stop, you're sitting there because sometimes you don't know if you're done getting hit or if somebody else is going to slide into you or yeah. what. And you kind of like open your eyes just a little bit, like check your surroundings, like, okay, I'm down here by myself. Nobody else is around me. Oh, damn it. There's a fire. You know, there was just a little fire coming out of the, the carburetor area, the air box. And so I was like, all right, fire means you got to get out. So, so I dropped the window net and I felt my leg just like kind of dangling there. Mm. So I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to pull myself with my arms and use my left leg. So I, I push with my left foot on the brake to like start pulling myself up and out. And my left foot just was like, boom, sharp pain. And I was like, oh, it's broke. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, just pull yourself out then, you know? So I just pulled myself with my arms as best I could and used my heel of my left foot to push and got myself to the door. And that's when the safety workers got there. And I was yelling at one of the guys like, Hey, my legs are broke. I need you to lift me out. My legs are broke. I need you to lift me out. So he got another guy waved over. And so the two of them were able to grab me and, and let me down to the ground. And, um, then, one of them was holding my leg up while we waited for the ambulance to get there. What are you thinking when you're at the hospital? <clears throat> um, so the right leg didn't really hurt. I was like, oh, okay, it's not bad. <laughs> you're just in, your body's in shock, right? And you, you have a compound fracture. Double which compound is, fracture. Which is like what, you know, Alex Smith or Joe Theismann. So my left foot hurt actually worse than my right leg did. <laughs> and it was kind of weird. But um, so the... Getting, yeah, so I got laid on the stretcher and then got put in the ambulance and driven to the hospital. And every stop and go, every speed up and slow down with the ambulance was just excruciating pain in the right leg because now I can feel it going back and forth. I don't remember walking into the hospital. It was all a blur and nobody told me anything. And I remember I went into the bathroom because I was like, I'm not gonna cry in front of everybody. I'm not gonna do it. And I sat in the bathroom and I just was, bawling. And I forgot my parents were there. They had been up in a suite and they had got there. And so my mom was like, no, put yourself together. Go find out what happened. I'm wondering where the hell Samantha is because I knew she was pregnant. So I'm like, you, got, you guys have to go find Samantha. Just let her back here. Let her know I'm okay, that I'm alive. And I went up there and I was like, I don't care what you say anymore. Like, I'm going to see him right now. Like, I, I need to see him. If All I kept thinking was like, if he's dying and he's not gonna make it, like, I, I have to be there with him. Or like, I have to let him know I'm here. And so I was kind of pregnant and hormonal. I should probably also mention that. And so I like stormed my way back there and I finally got to go back in. And when they opened the curtain, um, I realized why they're having me wait. You just saw like a bone sticking out. And I was, oh my God. Were you concerned your career might be over? I was, at, at, for sure, at one of the particular moments of after the crash, being in the hospital, I was, first of it, I was like, I wonder if I can still race tomorrow. And then I was like, there's no chance I'm gonna race tomorrow. Yeah. So then I was like, damn, I wonder if I'm ever gonna race again, you know? And I'm like, man, maybe my career's over. And you know, you, you, you just never know. What was your lowest point? through that whole process of recovering? There was a point where I was like, I'm gonna make it back. I'm gonna be fine. But you still have that, those low moments, you know? Like it's just you and your wife and the, your little dog and you're sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden you just start bust out in tears, you know? I would cry or she would cry or we would both cry, just like you miss it so much. Like it, the passion 
that you have for doing what you love to do and, and being a race car driver and racing is, I don't think, something that you can let die easy. Like, it's not going to be a fire that you just put out, right? Even you talking about it right now brings a little bit of a, like, twinkle to your eye. Like, yeah. Uh, so, to that, like, those moments, you know, and those moments, like, those low moments, I think they strengthened myself, though, too, because, like, once you snap out of that low, you're like, fuck it, where's the therapist? Like, let's get back after this therapy right now. Like, let's go. You know what I mean? So it, it was a whole wave of emotions that were just weird. Sonoma, uh, take me through that race, because that's the one that Ed Laucus, Joe Gibbs, your brother, um, everybody brought up is kind of almost more significant than the championship. Yeah, so... Coming back from injury, being able to get back in the car was at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the All-Star Race. I said it in the hospital to Joe Gibbs and everybody. I was like, I'm going to be back for the All-Star Race. It's a non-points race. We can get in. If I can't make it or if I can't do it, I can just get out. It doesn't matter. And so they were all like, yeah, right, whatever, kid. You're, you're high on drugs right now, so <laughs> you'll be fine tomorrow. Um, but lo and behold, I did it, and we made it for that. The other, the other point to make it back by then was because I wanted to make sure that I could stand and be in the hospital for Samantha for our son's delivery, for you, Brexton. You didn't want to be in a wheelchair. I didn't right? want to be in a wheelchair. I didn't want to be sitting off to the side, stacked over in the corner. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was, I was there for her and by her side. After that race, I was like, okay, you have to stop forcing it so hard. Like, I was wanting to force this movie star-type return where... I won so early after coming back, and it's a miracle, and, or I'm the best there ever was, or whatever. So I was like, stop being a dumbass. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, you ended up getting it anyway. I yeah. was like, just calm your senses. But having that talk with myself brings us to Sonoma. So I'm like, we're going to Sonoma. I don't even know if I can make the race like through the whole event because of the braking and all that with, your, with my foot and stuff. My leg was fine. I didn't feel anything wrong with my leg. But my left foot, I still had all the plates and the screws in it. So it's still swollen. Like every time I work out or every time I, uh, in, I'm in the car or I'm doing things with the brake, like it, it hurts, right? So we go through practice at Sonoma and I get out of the car and I, my foot is swollen in my race shoe. And I'm like, there is no way I'm going to make the race on Sunday. Like it's never going to happen. Like <laughs> I can't do it. So we didn't have a backup driver, but so I was like, I'm going to have to do it. So I was just powering through the last, I think it was an eight-lap run to the finish. And uh, passing the guy here, there, wherever, and I was able to take the lead. And from there, I just, I ran like hell. Like, legend car race, 1999, Kurt behind me, run like hell. And I remember after taking the checker flag, my foot felt like it was going to fall off. I mean, it hurt so bad. And then we come around, I do the celebratory burnouts, and I get out of the car, and I'm just like shaking, because I was just like, oh my God, we did it. Like, you know, the whole crew comes out, and we celebrate on the racetrack, and then I blew the tires out while doing a burnout. So I try to drive it back and limp it back to the, to the pit area just before where you pull into victory lane, and there's a hill. It wouldn't make it up the hill, it just sat there and spun the tires, so I got out of the car there and was like, I'm leaving. And I literally, I, as soon as I got out of the car, I sat down, I took my shoes off. My foot was so big, it was so tight in my shoe, I just, I had to take my shoe off. 
and just go to Victory Lane barefoot. And that was, that was it, we won. It was awesome. It was just, I mean, a true testament to how hard he worked and just to get to be there and witness it and support him. Um, best story was his foot was so blown up. And I'm like, what are we gonna do? We have this five hour flight home. So I went through the haulers and in the freezer there was old chicken. So I took chicken breasts, they were the individually wrapped ones, and I'll never forget, I took out my hair tie in the airplane and I put two chickens around his foot with my hair tie and that's how he sat the rest of the ride home. Although I know uh, the 2019 championship, uh, you might have been able to enjoy it more. Explain the satisfaction of winning the 2015 one. There's fans out there, there's historians of our sport that may or may not say that I should never have been eligible for the championship because I didn't run a full-time season. Because when you're back in the heyday of NASCAR, you have to run the whole year to get mm -hmm. points every single race to, to win a championship, right? Well, I missed 11 races. When I came back, NASCAR was like, yeah, if you make it top 30 in points and get a win, we'll give you a medical waiver. So I got a waiver and uh, we won the championship. And I remember going through turns three and four. And as I was coming out of four, like there's a, a tear drop that rolls down my eyes. And I was just like, there was, there was besides my son being born and that emotional time laying in the hospital bed with Samantha in our living room, it was like, wow, this just, I, I don't know that I've never felt anything like that before. It was crazy. I mean, it, way bigger than any win, way bigger than anything I've ever accomplished, obviously, just being able to win that championship. So that was amazing. There is a photo, and it's Kyle and I at the championship in um, Race in Miami after he won. And we're sitting out on the track, and we're holding Brexton, and the trophy's there. And it was just such a, like, wow unbelievable fairy tale ending because we had struggled so hard to have Brexton. He struggled so hard to come back that it was like, you looked at 2015 and before and you were like, this what an awful year, you know? Like, look at how much they've had to endure. And then I just remember sitting there. It was like one in the morning at this point because victory lane takes so long. And there was only a few photographers and it was just us and we just kind of looked at each other. I'm like, we did it. Like, we did it, we made it, you know? And that was just really special. How did the idea for the Bundle of Joy Foundation come about? So in 2015, when we had our son Brexton, we had to go through IVF. Samantha and I weren't able to naturally conceive our son, so we had to go through IVF to have him. And so we, boom, thought <clears throat> when we went through... And by the way, credit to you guys for being public uh, 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 about that. Because, Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So when we, we... She was public the whole way about it. We were. Um, and we heard a lot of people not talking about it. And there was not this stipulation built around it or this stigma, but not a lot of people would voice their infertility problems, right? So there was that, A, raise awareness for that, but B, we figured out how expensive it all was. Like it's $25,000 for point A to point B for one round of IVF and you might not be successful at it. So we wanted to help the financial burden on other couples that couldn't afford to do that. But then, to see them with their hospital photos or right when they bring their baby home and just to see this joy and to either get the letters or the texts or the calls from them about like we're parents and we're parents because of what you guys started. Like that's, it's, it's indescribable because I know, you know, the first time I saw Brexton and held him or I know the first time he gave me a kiss or said, mom, those emotions and understanding that Sure, we struggled, but we struggled now for a purpose that other people get to feel that. It's, 
I would never take away all, all the crap we've been through on our journey because we've used it to help people and that's what matters. Thanksgiving 2018, you just announced, you know, second pregnancy, gonna have a little girl. Uh, you know, I think Samantha had worked out in, in the morning, who's playing with Brexton. Um, what happened from there? So yeah, that, um, that day, so Samantha wakes up, eats breakfast, works out, and then she was, she was playing with Brexton. Um, I don't remember what I was doing, but uh, they were up in the, his playroom, um, classroom area, and she felt this urge to go use the restroom. And so when she stood up, she felt it on her leg. And so she reached down and there was blood there. And so instantly she was like trying to hide it from Brexton, but Brexton saw it and was like, mommy, what's wrong? And so she was like, nothing, 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 I'm fine. I think I just cut my finger, go get your dad. So Brexton comes running downstairs, grabs me. So I go up there and I see her and um, she's crying. I knew I was miscarrying. Um, and Kyle was putting Brexton in the car and so he was sitting there waiting for me and I wasn't coming out. So he came back in and I was just crying and I really couldn't get up yet. And um, I was like, this is it. Like, I know it's it. And he's like, we don't know it, we don't know it. And I was like, okay, you know, and, and we probably sat there for like 15 minutes. And I just, I, I remember crying in a way that just, you've never cried before. Like I've cried when I was sad and I, I cried when I was happy at Brexton or you've cried, but this was like a, it's like a primal feeling that as a mom, you just knew. So I went in and they did an ultrasound and he was like, well, I don't know what to tell you. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, your cervix is closed and I still see an embryo, but she's small. So it's a threatened miscarriage, but she's still there. So I'm like, well, what do we do from here? Like, what's happening? And they said, well, you have to go for more blood tests, but right now it's a threatened miscarriage, but not a confirmed miscarriage. So we um, went home. I just remember that night trying to find out any information and I'm looking and it's like 50%, right? 50% of the time this is fine. It's early, it could still happen and so I feel like I've already lost her. Kyle's trying to hold on to hope, trying to get me to hold on to hope. We're just scrambling, right? And um, then the next day, but by then, all bleeding and stopped, I felt fine. So now I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe we're okay. How gut-wrenching was it then for the two of you days later to go to the NASCAR yeah. uh, awards? Well, we, so she got, she got blood work done and then we had to fly to Vegas and we're in Vegas just the whole time we're awaiting the results because they don't come back hourly, they come back after a day or two. Mm -hmm. So um, the results come back and, and she's in the room getting ready for the banquet, getting her makeup on, getting her dress on and all that sort of stuff and she got the call. She was like, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but it, it's done. And um, I just, shut down. I was like, no, it's not. It's not. 
I've had, now had 48 hours to tell myself it's not, it's not done. Like, I'm, I'm not accepting it. And then you guys don't want to say anything to anybody and everybody's congratulating everybody's you. Everybody's congratulating us as we're walking down the red carpet saying, oh, great. And so she's like, thanks. Yeah, it's really awesome. Whatever, you know. And so we didn't want to take anything away from, you know, the champion that night and the celebration and of all of that. And so we just had to hold it in the whole time. Both of us were just blank. And... You know, we went to the room that night and obviously cried and, and prayed about it. But I woke up in the middle of the night and it hit me like a ton of bricks. We had to tell Brexton. And that was the hardest. That was the hard part was he was so excited. And he would walk around the house with stuffed animals in his shirt and say he was pregnant with me. And I knew that he was young and, and he wouldn't fully understand it. but. That was the part that really I felt like sent me over the edge was knowing we had to tell him. And then also still miscarry then, because, yeah. What did you say to Brexton? Um, we told him that, you know, his baby sister was in heaven with God, and he just kept saying, well, when's she going to come back down to play with me? What did, you know, going through that teach you about fertility, including your own? Well, we, when, <clears throat> when we went through egg retrieval and the embryo cycle and all that sort of stuff, and we got eight embryos, five boys, three girls, um, and then I was like, Samantha's a healthy woman, she's fine, like she just has problems with the egg, doing what it needs to do. So when we make it in a dish and you put it back in her, it's gonna be fine. Like it's gonna attach, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna work, everything's gonna be great, right? No big deal. Well, it worked for the first one, Brexton was fine. I was exactly right. The doctor even asked us, he goes, you want to put one in or two in? Because sometimes one doesn't exactly work. And I'm like, have you seen her size? Like, there ain't no way she's carrying two. Like, we're just doing one. It's going to work. It's going to be fine. Well, it worked. So you think, you're, you kind of take it for granted. You're like, ah, oh, it's going to be fine again. She's healthy. She's good. No problem. Boom. Put another one in, right? It didn't work. And then the third one didn't work. And then the fourth one in a surrogate who had the best looking uterus to the doctors didn't work. We've never said, let's quit, we're going to be done doing this. We're always just like, geez, what is next? You know, like how hard does this have to be? So that's, that's what's most gut-wrenching about it. What, what are next steps? So next, next steps right now is <clears throat> we feel as though there, we have no more girl embryos. So we need to make new girl embryos. So we have to start back at square one and go through the egg retrieval process with Samantha. To somebody who's watching, who's going through a similar situation with their partner, um, what do you do to keep the relationship strong amid all of that? Um, you know, Samantha would say back in the beginning, she thought it was all her fault and there was something wrong with her and that it was that um, she's the reason why we can't have children. Well, come to find out, she had PCOS and I had uh, low sperm count. I had male factor. And so, you know, we're both, we both suck, is what we said. <laughs> so that's how we both sell it to each other now. It's like, we just, we just both suck, you know. So um, we're both just not good at this. But uh, with what we've been able to accomplish and, and the good that's come out of with Brexton and the joy and the love that we have with him, for him, for, and, and so we want to share that with another one, a girl. Samantha wants a baby girl. So that would complete our our family, we feel like. Um, I will admit there have 
been times that we have both been so supportive to each other. And then there has been times through this journey that we both were like, are we gonna make it? I don't, I don't know if as a couple, we're gonna make it. We ended up um, going to counseling. We ended up like prioritizing each other again. We had to really sit down and say, okay, we love each other. The way that we're processing a miscarriage and fertility stuff is not lining up and we're just fighting nonstop. We have to do something about this. And you realize that's what, that's what marriage is. It's waking up and knowing that no matter what life hands you, you're gonna do it together. We just keep building each other up and supporting each other and, and hey, you suck, hey, you suck, you know? But we, um, at, at the end of the day, we, you, you love each other and, and you work through the situations as best you can and, and, and you just, it's about being each other's rock. She'll have a bad day and I'll have a bad day and, and we just pull together. Thank you very much for doing this. Absolutely, yeah, right on. Kyle also offered us a thorough tour of his 77,000 square foot headquarters. Plus, we race remote controlled cars. We also check out a race of his young son, Brexton and chat with his dad, Tom, brother, Kurt, team owner and football hall of famer, Joe Gibbs. You could watch all of that on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also make sure to subscribe to our podcast. It really does help us in continuing to grow this. Thanks again for listening.